If you have a Bible, I invite you to turn with me to Galatians chapter 4. Galatians chapter 4. Derek Redman arrived at the 1992 Summer Olympics in Barcelona hungry for a medal. He really didn't care what color the medal was, gold, silver, or bronze. He just wanted a medal. You see, at age 19, he had shattered the British 400-meter record. But when he got to the 1998 Olympics and was about to show the world what he could do, he sustained an Achilles tendon injury 10 minutes before his race. After five surgeries in the first year and three more years of training, he was back and now ready to run for the medal that he thought he should have had four years ago, wanting to show the world what he could do. He had made it in the preliminary qualifying races, and now he was in the last qualifying heat in order to go for the medal race. And as the gun went off in that qualifying race, Derek broke away from the lead early on beyond all the other runners, and it seemed clear that he would be assured victory in the race. But then just past the halfway point, with about 145 meters left, Derek heard the sound of his right hamstring pop. Onlookers say it was like seeing a man shot in the leg as he went down, clutching. He wanted to run to finish the race. He got back up, but hobbled and quickly fell back down the ground with tears in his eyes from the pain. Unbeknownst to most people at that moment, a man who was sitting near the very top of the stadium began running down towards the field as soon as he saw Derek fall. He quickly made it past onlookers, sometimes knocking them over. He even made it past security, hopping the fence, running out onto the field straight towards Derek. And as security yelled after this man, Jim Redmond, to stop, he yelled back at them, that's my son and I'm going out there to help him. Jim made it to his son just as Derek was getting back to his feet, waving off the stretcher and the EMTs. Jim put his arm around his son's waist and put his arm around his own neck and said, I'm here, son. We'll finish this race together. Derek put his arms around his father's shoulders and began sobbing as they walked the remaining 120 meters together, finishing the race to the tears and the applause of 45,000 people in the stands. That was a good day for fathers. And despite how glorious a picture that scene was of love and compassion and sacrifice for a human father for his son, it ultimately pales in comparison to the example we have of our Heavenly Father. We have a far greater example of goodness and love and beauty of fatherhood in Him. And a father who loves his children more deeply and more perfectly than any human father could ever love a human child. And this morning, as we are continuing to look at the God who saves, seeking to better understand and cherish the work that God has done for us through Christ, we want to now begin to look at the blessings that flow from the cross of Christ. And specifically, we want to look at the adoption that God has given us in Christ. And so I would encourage you to follow along as we read in Galatians chapter 4, beginning at verse 4. The Apostle Paul writes... When the fullness of time had come, God sent forth His Son, born of a woman, under the law, to redeem those who were under the law, so that we might receive adoption as sons. And because you are sons, God has sent the Spirit of His Son into our hearts, crying, Abba, Father. 
So you are no longer a slave, but a son. And if a son, then an heir through God. May God bless the reading of His Word. This morning we want to see four things about adoption from our text this morning. Four truths and four points of application for our lives today. The first thing that we need to see from this passage is that our adoption flows from the cross of Christ. Our adoption flows from the cross. And again, we've been looking at the salvation that God has brought to us. In the last four weeks, we especially were looking very intently at the cross itself and what it provided for us. And we saw that really four, four central things were accomplished on the cross. Christ died as our propitiation, fulfilling God's wrath against our sin. That on the cross, uh, Christ won our justification, that is our legal standing before God, and that our sins were forgiven and uh, we are given righteousness with Him. And we saw last week specifically that through the cross we are reconciled to God. We who were once His enemies have now been made His friends. And now, uh, in a real way, we are turning the corner in the process of salvation, seeing not just the base of our, of our salvation, but now very much our experience of salvation. And this morning we begin with understanding that our adoption is rooted in and flows from the cross of Christ. Paul says at the very beginning when he says, When the fullness of time had come, God sent forth His Son, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those who are under the law, so that we might receive adoption as sons. That's all one sentence for Paul. And in that one sentence, Paul tells us several things about Christ's work for His people. First of all, he tells us His coming happened according to the Father's perfect plan. You know, several years, several years ago, there was a movie that came out, and it featured a lot of very famous uh, singers and artists in the Christian uh, music industry. And the whole premise of the movie was, what if Jesus had been born in the, 20, in the 20th century? What if he would have been uh, in, incarnated uh, and, uh, and, and basically suffered and died in the 90s? And I understand what they were trying to do there, but, but the reality is the whole premise was mistaken. The whole premise was, was false. The Bible is clear that there was a very specific intentionality to Christ coming when He did. Christ couldn't have just come whenever He wanted he didn't, because He didn't come isolated from history. He came at a very specific time at the apex of what God was doing in and through His people. For instance, today uh, He could not have come to do what God desired Him to do because the nation of Israel is far different than it was back then. Yes, there is a nation state called Israel. But they do nothing of the kind of things that God calls them to do because they have no temple, so they offer no sacrifices. They do not keep the law as they should. They do not participate in so many other things. Uh, the reality of all of that is missing, and yet it was a key component in Christ's coming and dying for the sins of His people. Paul says very specifically a couple of things, doesn't he? He says, first of all, that he was the perfect provision for salvation, that he came as God's Son born of a woman. Paul is reminding us here that when Christ came, He alone was perfectly qualified to be the Savior. He was fully divine as God the Son and yet also fully human being born of a woman. But more than that, the perfect God-man was born under the law. Again, Christ was born in such a way and at such a time that He was able to come in full view of the law of Moses uh, that God had given to Israel. He was born under all of the obligations of the covenant people of God in the law and so was able to fully meet those obligations. 
Christ could be called the end of the law, both in the sense that he was the purpose, he was the fulfillment to which it was pointing, and also in that he was the only person to have fully kept and perfectly realized what the law was all about. And so John Stott can say this, the divinity of Christ, the humanity of Christ, and the righteousness of Christ uniquely qualified him to be man's redeemer. If he had not been man, he could not have redeemed men. If he had not been a righteous man, he could not have redeemed unrighteous men. And if he had not been God's son, he could not have redeemed men for God or made them sons of God. And yet Christ was all those things and did all those things on the cross as he died to redeem sinners for God. If you were listening at the beginning, I said there were four things and only mentioned three that happened on the cross. This is the fourth one, the redemption uh, that Christ won for us on the cross. The redemption language, again, comes from the slave market. If you wanted to redeem a slave out of slavery, you had to purchase their pardon with a price of redemption. There was a cost that had to be paid. And the scriptures tell us that Christ paid the precious cost of his own blood in order to redeem his people from slavery to sin. But more than that, Christ died to redeem those who were under the law so that we might receive adoption as sons. The redemption that Christ won for his people was not just a redemption from slavery, but also to sonship. He, the redemption allowed us to be called the children of God. And you know, we've got to be careful because today there's, there's this mindset that says, you know, we're all children of God. You know, that if, you're, if you're a human being, that you're a child of God, and we all just be together, it doesn't matter what we believe and all that kind of thing. And um, a few years ago, a country singer named Alan Jackson came up with a song called, We're All God's Children. And that song, he sings this. Here comes a Baptist. Here comes a Jew. There goes a Mormon and a Muslim too. I see a Buddhist and a Hindu. I see a Catholic and I see you. We're all God's children. We're all God's children. We're all God's children. Why can't we be one big happy family. Now, that's not great poetry, okay? I mean, we understand that, right? <laughs> I do anyway. But it captures the spirit of the age very well. Why, what are we fighting about all the time? It doesn't matter if you're a Hindu. It doesn't matter if you're a Muslim or you're a Christian. We're all just, we're all God's children. We're all in this thing together. And, you know, we've been reading about it. We'll talk a little bit about tonight about how Satan likes to use just the tiniest bit of truth and twist it and blow it up and magnify it out of proportion to lead people into error. There is the, the tiniest hint of truth in that all of, all of humanity is God's children in that just as Henry Ford is called the father of the Model T, so also God is the father of all his creation. But the scriptures are very clear in saying there is a much more profound sense in which God adopts sinful people redeemed by the blood of Christ to be his children. And so the spirit of the age, the intention line behind that song is biblically completely contrary to the mindset of the scripture. The Bible reserves the title child of God exclusively for those who have professed faith in Christ as Savior and Lord. John begins his gospel this way, to all who received Christ, to all who believed in his name, God gave the right to become the children of God. Biblically speaking, you are not God's child unless you place your faith in Christ, unless you receive the salvation that he comes for. Therefore, adoption is not the norm for everyone. It's not the normal experience for everyone, but it is the normal experience for those who profess faith in Christ. 
for those who receive the salvation that He has provided for us on the cross. And our adoption very specifically means that we experience adoption as sons of God. This is the second thing that we see from our passage this morning, that our adoption means sonship with God. You know, during the Old Testament times, it's, it's very interesting to me. The law prescribed all kinds of things. It prescribed what to do when you had diseases. It described what to do with various foods that you encountered. It described how to plant your crops, what kind of clothes to wear. But it says nothing about adoption. Now, I find that amazing. Because we would think, in our society, in our culture, adoption is a pretty big deal, isn't it? Uh, but back then, nothing. I mean, they tell you, what, you know, what, what kind of seeds to plant and everything, and there's, there's nothing. There's nothing about adoption. Now, to some degree, that's because the family system uh, was developed in such a way in Israel that you didn't need to do that. The families were so integrated, not just with the nuclear family, but through the extended families, that if uh, an individual child should find himself without parents, it would, be, it would be nothing for that child to be immediately assimilated into another family. So there was, there was no need to have legal provision there. Nevertheless, even without the legal provision, even though the word adoption is itself never used, there are examples of it and instances of it in the Old Testament. Perhaps the most profound is when God Himself uses the very language of sonship to describe His relationship to the nation of Israel. In Hosea 11, the Lord says, When Israel was a child, I loved him, and out of Egypt I called my son. But you notice the language of sonship there is generic. It's the entire nation of Israel. It's the entire people group that God is saying He is taking on as His Son. But now that Christ has come, there's something more that's taken place. There is a specificity to the sonship that we enjoy in that it's not just the church that is the Son of God. It's the church that contains the sons of God. We as individuals are given the adoption as sons. And so Paul is most likely taking up, though certainly with, with the understanding of the broader biblical theology of sonship, he is very specifically thinking of the Roman mindset, the very formal legal proceedings of adoption when he uses this language to describe what God has done for his people. And I think that's probably true because uh, it's in the letters written to Christians living under Roman rule very specifically that Paul uses this language of adoption. You understand that in Roman culture it was usually a wealthy adult who had no heir who would choose to adopt an heir for himself and for his estate. Once the son was adopted in Roman law, all of his old debts were instantly canceled out. He was given a new name and it was as if he was starting a new life with a new family. On the one hand, the new father owned all of the son's property. The father had all of the authority of controlling his personal relationships and disciplining the son for inappropriate behavior. But on the other hand, the father was also liable for the actions of the adoptee. And so this is the, the mindset that Paul is, is bringing, the cultural understanding of the minds of the people when he says, God has now adopted us as sons through the sacrifice of Christ. For all who would look to Christ in faith and receive Him as Savior and Lord, God in turn looks at them and calls them His child, His son. That's something that you have to understand. There's something that you need to understand about our adoption is that it's not necessary for salvation. God does not have to adopt us as His children for us to be Christians. Do you understand that? 
in, in the cross through propitiation and redemption and justification and reconciliation. If he, if he just stopped there, we would be saved. Our sins would be forgiven. We would have the righteousness we need to stand before God. And that would be the end of it. But God goes above and beyond. God goes above and beyond just saving us from our sins. He pours out His love upon us and calls us to be His children. In every way, He becomes our Heavenly Father. And in doing so, He is making the promise not just to save us from sins. He is making the promise to protect us, to provide for us, to discipline us when we go the wrong way. He is promising to love and to care for us as the greatest father who would ever love or care for a son. And so J.I. Packer says that though justification is the primary and fundamental blessing of the gospel, it's our adoption as sons that is the highest blessing that God provides in the gospel. He didn't have to do it, but he chooses to set his affection on us in a unique way and call us to himself as sons. It speaks to a new intimacy that we have with God. And this is the third thing that we want to see from our passage. Our adoption provides intimacy with God. If you're taking notes, you need to just scratch out the word there on point three, salvation, just write with God, and you'll have it there. All right? Our adoption provides intimacy with God. The Puritan pastor Thomas Goodwin once described this Intimacy and assurance of God's love as being like a father and a son walking down the road. He says, imagine the father and the son walking on the road on just an average day. It's an ordinary day and there is no doubt, there's no question in, the mind of the, in their minds of the love that exists between them. The son loves the father, the father loves the son, and they both know it. But then for some unknown reason, he says, by some hidden impulse, the father is moved to suddenly grab up the son, to sweep him into his arms, to hold him close and to hug him, to whisper in his ear, I love you and I will love you forever. And he kisses him on the cheek and sets him back down. Does the father tell the son anything new? Anything the son didn't know? No. See, new information about the relationship conveyed to the son? No. Nevertheless, the son's experience of the father's love is fundamentally different after that walk down the road. There is, a, there, is an, there is a greater intensity, there is a greater sweetness, a greater intimacy that comes in knowing experientially the love of the father to the son. And we have to understand that that's exactly what God does for his children as well. Paul says, because your sons... God has sent the spirit of his son into our hearts crying, Abba, Father. Now, it's important that we make, a, we make a point here. Notice what Paul says. Because you are sons, God has sent the spirit of his son into our hearts crying, Abba, Father. Our experience of God's love is based on the objective reality that we are already sons, that he's already adopted us because of what Christ has done. Now, I say that for one very important reason. There is a tendency for us to want to base our understanding of the things of God on experience alone. And that's dangerous. That's very dangerous. Because our experiences, our emotions will fool us. We think we feel something driven by God, and we don't. And here's an example of this. One of the ways we know Mormonism is not a Christian church is not part of Christianity is because of the things they believe about Christ. 
It flies in the face of everything the Bible teaches about Christ. And so we can say uh, with great accuracy, they're, they're a cult. Nevertheless, if you were to talk to a Mormon, and if you talked long enough that they felt like you were getting close to embracing Mormonism as a faith, one of the things they would tell you to do is pray to God for verification of the, of, the truth, uh, of the truthfulness of the Mormon faith. And they would specifically say, ask the Lord provide within you, their language, a burning in your bosom. That is to say, an emotional experience that shows you the validity of the Mormon faith. And guess what? Almost every Mormon has the experience. Now we already know, we already know from the outset, it's not a Christian experience. God's not going to answer that prayer because they fundamentally deny the reality of who Christ is and the work He's done on the cross. Nevertheless, they have an experience. So my point in all this is to say, you can't, you can't be driven by experience. You've got to be driven by the truth. How many times have you heard, I don't know, maybe you haven't ever heard, but there are people that will say things like, I feel... I feel so strongly that God wants me to be happy and He wants me to leave my wife to do it. The Bible says don't do that. So God's not telling you that. I've heard pastors say, I feel God telling me to, you know, to go to this other church. Well, well, why would you go to the other church and leave the one you're at? Well, it's a bigger church and I'm going to get a bigger salary and be closer to home. Interesting. Are you sure God's the one telling you to do that? We can't be driven by our emotions. And even though there is an emotional component to salvation, it is based on the objective reality of what Christ has done. And that's a good thing. It should be a good thing. You know why? Because there are days I don't feel like a Christian. You ever have those days? Sometimes it's, sometimes it's not just one day. Sometimes it's weeks. Because of sinfulness of myself or whatever it, whatever it is, I feel like I am out in the desert with no oasis in sight, parched for spiritual waters, and, and it would be very easy for me to say, I must not be a Christian because I certainly don't feel like it. And what do you do during those times? Do you say, God, give me the experience? No, don't, don't do that. Okay? You, use the holy math. Say, what in the world is that? You know what syllogism is? Uh, you know, syllogism is basically a statement of facts that equal a math equation. Okay? So here's what you say in your mind. Did God send Christ to provide salvation on the cross? Answer, yes. Has God made the promise that all who turn to Him in faith will receive salvation? Yes. Have I turned to Christ and embraced Him in faith as Savior and Lord? Yes. Then I'm a Christian. I'm saved. I'm a child of God. doesn't matter if I feel like it or not. Okay? That's what we base ultimately and finally our assurance on. But guess what? God goes beyond that. God goes beyond the mere facts. And guess what he says? I have sent my spirit into your hearts crying out, Abba, Father. He not just tells us like the son walking hand in hand down the road. Yes, you know and I know we love each other. He also reaches us up into his arms and kisses us and whispers into his ear, I have made you my son. I have adopted you out of love. So we in turn cry out to him, Oh, Father, I love you too. I love you too. That's what Paul is getting at here. That's what Paul is getting at here. He's saying there is a greater intimacy and assurance that comes in knowing we are the sons of God by God sending his spirit into our hearts. And Paul says, Because you are sons, because you are sons, because the Spirit cries into our hearts, I'm a father, you are no longer a slave, but a son. 
You see, this makes a difference in how we go about serving God. What does a slave do? It serves, right? Serves the master. Are we supposed to serve God? Yes, right? And, and in fact, Paul will say, you're no longer a slave to sin, you are a slave to Christ. And so it's not, that we, it's not that we do away with service, but we fundamentally do not see ourselves as servants of God. We fundamentally see ourselves as sons of God. That is the, that is the overriding way in which we should think about our lives before God now. Do we serve Him? Yes, but we serve Him as sons. So what difference is this going to make? Pastor Tim Keller walks us through the difference it will make. He says, if you're a slave... You obey under compulsion. You obey because you have to. But if you're a son, you obey because you love and take joy in your father. As a slave, you work under the threat of pain or loss. There is a fear of receiving punishment as payback for failure. As a son, there's no fear because discipline comes as a loving instruction, not retribution. As a slave, there's insecurity in the relationship. I might get beat. He might throw me out of the house if I fail. As a son, there is security because I know my father will forgive me. As a slave, there is a focus on the external, on behaviors and rules. I've got, I've got to do everything that I'm, that I'm told to do in the way that I'm doing. But as a son, there's a concentration on the relationship with God. There's a concentration on the attitudes of my heart. All of these things speak to the radical difference that comes in not just being saved as God's people, but now being adopted as His sons. The intensity of the intimacy and the deep sense of love from God that comes to us through our adoption. God has put His Spirit into our hearts so that in times of joy and in times of great distress, we can both call out to Him as Abba, Father. The last thing that we see is that our adoption brings an eternal inheritance. Our adoption brings an eternal inheritance. When the fullness of time had come, God sent forth His Son, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those who were under the law, so that we might receive adoption as sons. And because you are sons, God has sent the Spirit of His Son into our hearts, crying, Abba, Father. So you are no longer a slave, but a son. And if a son, then an heir through God. Often today, we... I say we, I mean evangelical Christianity, which, you know... Uh, not to, to bore you at length, but, you know, doctrinally speaking, that, that means nothing anymore, okay? It used to mean something. If you were an evangelical, that meant there were certain things that you stood for, the authority of the Bible, the lordship of Christ. Now, you can pretty much believe anything you want and still say, oh, I'm an evangelical. So it doesn't mean a whole lot, okay? And you understand evidence by this. There's this mindset that, you know, the Bible was written in a time when, um, you know, society was patriarchal, men ruled everything, women had no rights, and so that's why there's all the language of God as He and children as sons. But now we live in a better, more enlightened time. We understand women, men and women are equals. They can do anything the other can do. And so, uh, so we go back to the Bible and we neutralize all of the, the gender language. So it's not sons of God, now it's children of God. It's, it's not uh, the man who does this, it's the person who does this. Okay? And again, you see how Satan works, right? Because there certainly is an, an, an element of truthfulness there. Although the contrast is not as severe as some would make it, uh, certainly we understand that, that before the throne of God there is an equality among the genders. Nevertheless, there, are, there is gender. And with gender comes very specific roles and responsibilities and obligations. There are different callings in our life based upon the gender that God has given us. And so the, the task for us is not, to, is not to obliterate culture. It's to understand when God gave the scriptures and, and froze those words and that culture, he, he froze it eternally. 
The task is not for us to try and deculturify it to bring it to us. The task for us is to understand the culture so we get to the truth of God's word. And here's one of those times if we don't get it right, we miss the significance of the whole meaning of what Paul is saying here. We don't, we don't say, oh, it's not sons, now it's just children. No, it's sons. Why? Because in that culture, only the oldest son was the primary heir. That's why if a man didn't have a son, he adopted one. He needed an heir. He needed someone to carry on the family name and to keep things going. That just wasn't the role for women in that society. And you see what Paul is saying here now. He is saying that now both men and women, all individuals, have been adopted as sons. And because they are sons, they are now heirs of God. Think about it like this. When I die, there's going to be just one one amount of money in my checking and savings and whatever else. Probably a very small amount. Okay. Nevertheless, there's going to be one amount. Well, right now, I've got three kids. I can't take all of the amount and give it all to Joshua. I can't take all the amount again and give it to Rebecca. I take all the amount again and give it to David. That's bad math, isn't it? Okay? Um, <clears throat> can't do that. I've got to divide it up. And assuming they're not mean to me in old age, they're all going to get equal shares, right? No, I'm just teasing. You, know. uh, you divide it one-third, 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 right? That's the way it works. But guess what? It doesn't work that way with God. It doesn't work that way with God. Because in your adoption, you are all adopted as sons, as firstborn, and therefore the primary heirs to the inheritance. You receive all of it. You are full heirs in Christ. It's not that God has salvation and He divvies it up among individuals. He gives you the works to each and every one who would claim the name of Christ. So what does that look like? What does it mean to have God as our benefactor, the one to whom we are receiving the inheritance. What are we getting as our inheritance? Well, it's two things at least. In the end, we can summarize it by saying we are, we are receiving, we are inheriting salvation in its fullness. And part of what that means is that we receive two things. First of all, we receive the fullness of God. We receive the fullness of God. Part, the, matter of fact, the main benefit, the main inheritance is God himself. If someone has rightly asked, if you got to heaven and Jesus wasn't there, would you want to stay? Well, for the Christian, the answer should be no. No. I mean, we, we get wrapped up in talking about, you know, uh, which is metaphorical language, I think, anyway, the streets of gold and everything else, but the reality of a body with, with no sin, no corruption, you know, uh, we, we struggle with sickness, that won't be the case anymore. We'll have eternal life and we'll see our loved ones. Those are all great and glorious things that God promises to give us, but the central hope of heaven is that God's going to be there. God will be there. And when Moses called out, God, show me your glory. And he says, I can't. No man can stand that. I'm going to show you just the last little bit of my, uh, 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 the very edge of my glory, all of my goodness. And Moses comes off the mountain and his face is burning with intensity. And the people are frightened. They say, you got to cover it up. Put a, put a veil on. It's too glorious for us. Well, friends, when we get to heaven, it's not going to be like that. It's not going to be like that. The hope of the resurrection is that our bodies will be fit for in eternity in heaven with God's presence. Paul says that we will reflect the glory of Christ as we stare him in the face. So his glory goes to us. We behold it, we see it, it in turn reflects back to him, thus magnifying his glory and his worth forever and ever. Part of the, the, the joy of heaven is being able to look at our Savior face to face in the unshielded presence of his glory radiating for all of eternity. The hope of heaven is there's, there's no need for a temple there because God dwells. There's no need for a sun there because his glory is shining forevermore. 
So the first part of our inheritance is receiving the fullness of God Himself. But secondly, we receive what is God's. We receive what is God's. What is God's? Everything. Everything belongs to God. And so Paul will say in 1 Corinthians 3, writing to Christians, All things are yours, whether Paul or Apollos or Cephas or the world or life or death, the present or the future, all are yours, for you are Christ and Christ is God's. So everything God has becomes yours. Now, you say, well, what does that mean practically? You know, I mean, what, what, does, that, what does that actually mean? I think John Piper is very helpful. He, he explains it like this. Says, Inheriting the world means that everything that exists will serve your happiness. Nothing will have the final prerogative of trumping your joy. All things are yours means that even the negative things, like life and death that Paul mentions here, will serve you in the end. In the end, God does not merely defeat every enemy of your good, but turns enemies into servants for your joy. That's what it means to be an heir of God. It means receiving the fullness of salvation. God in all of His glory and all things put under your feet to serve you in your joy in God forever and ever and ever. Being an heir ultimately means that your life then is shaped by the future. Your life today is shaped by the future. If you're a child of God, if you are His son, if you are His heir, then we are to live in light of the inheritance that is coming to us. And we see people doing this all the time today, don't we? We, we, we see people that, we see, um, you, know, um, you know, probably, I, I, I guess, you know, the, the, the greatest example is uh, the princes over in England, right? Harry and whatever the other guy's name is. They've done nothing with their lives at this point. But they've been to school, one's in the military, you know, respect them for that. But, but what have they accomplished? A big fat goose egg. Nothing. But the press follows them around, taking pictures. People are writing stories about them. Everybody's to know what, what are they doing? Who are they dating? What are they wearing? What are they, what, what's going on? Why? Because of what they stand to inherit. What do they stand to inherit? The kingdom of England itself. The United Kingdom. They don't, and it's not like they've earned it. They've not deserved it. They don't deserve all the attention. They don't deserve to be thought of as celebrities. But it's what they've got coming to them that merits how they live their life now. Likewise for us. God has not only begun our salvation, but one day He will complete it. And in completing it, we will receive the fullness of that salvation. We will receive the inheritance as sons that He has promised us in Christ. That should have a transforming effect about how, on how you think about this life, how you think about serving God, on how you express your love for God. Because he's not just saved you by his grace. He's adopted you as sons. And he's promised you an inheritance as, imagine this, he calls us co-heirs with Christ. Christ, our older brother, God, our heavenly father. In 2 Samuel 9, David has been installed as king over Israel. God has established his covenant with him and he is settled as the new ruler of Israel. Just previous to this, the, the wicked king Saul had been struck down by the Lord in battle, and Saul's son Jonathan had also fallen. Saul was the people's choice for king, not God's. And when he sinned, and God said, Your descendants will not have the throne, he took the kingdom from Saul, and he anointed, even as a young man, David to one day be king. It incensed Saul. 
and the sinfulness of his heart, he began to hate David. And, even, and it caused David to be on the run. He had a small band of mighty men, and for years he's running around the wilderness just trying to stay alive, actually fighting against the Philistines, the battle that Saul should have been fighting as the king of Israel. And so David is at one time already serving as king, defeating Israel's enemies. And at the same time, he's also looking behind him constantly, the threat of Saul and his army coming to take his life. Despite Saul's hatred of David, Saul's son Jonathan loved David. Because he could see clearly God's hand upon David's life. He knew he was the anointed king. And so David had pledged his allegiance. Jonathan had pledged his allegiance to David. But now both are dead. David has settled as king, and he asks to all those in the court, Is there anyone left of the house of Saul that I may show him kindness for Jonathan's sake? And one of Saul's old servants, Ziba, tells David the only living descendant of the house of Saul was Jonathan's son, Mephibosheth. Now, Mephibosheth was not like any other son, though. In a race to flee from an ensuing army, his nurse had dropped him when he was only a few years old and broken both of his legs. So Mephibosheth has been an outcast from society, a cripple, a nobody. Today, when people have handicaps, we lavish love and attention and affection on them, make things easier for them. In that culture, if you were handicapped in any way, you were of no practical value, you were of no use, and no one wanted to have anything to do with you. And as the victorious king, all the other nations would have expected David to slaughter any of Saul's descendants who might attempt to one day take the throne to him. But David was told of Mephibosheth, and he left his throne. And he found him living out in the middle of nowhere in the desert. And David said to him, Do not fear, for I will show you kindness for the sake of your father Jonathan. And I will restore to you all the land of Saul your father, and you shall eat at my table always. Mephibosheth paid homage and said to David, What is your servant that you should show regard for a dead dog such as I? And the narrator tells us, King David called Ziba, Saul's servant, and said to him, All that belonged to Saul and all his house I have given to your master's grandson Mephibosheth. And you and your sons and your servants shall, to the land for, shall till the land for him and shall bring in the produce and your master's grandson may have bread to eat. But Mephibosheth shall always eat at my table. Then Ziba said to the king, According to all that my lord the king commands his servant, you so will your servant do. So Mephibosheth ate at David's table like one of the king's sons. Here is the grandson of the man who betrayed David, who sought to hunt him down and kill him like a dog. Here is this grandson, Mephibosheth, living in the desert with no dignity, no respect. And David doesn't just look out for him. He doesn't just set up a trust fund for him and say, check in on him every once in a while. I loved his dad. He says, bring him into my house and give him a place of honor at my table as if he is my own son. And loved ones, that is a glorious picture of what God has done for us. We were once sinful, rebellious traitors throwing off God's leadership and His law and living however we wanted. And God not only sent Christ to die in our place while we were still sinners, but then He chose to adopt us, to bring us into fellowship and make us His sons and heirs. The only response to that is like Mephibosheth to say, what am I that you would look upon a dead dog like me? with such mercy and love and grace. And in seeking to understand that, adoption of God 
we then in turn seek to live our lives as God's children. We seek with the love and joy and thankfulness that God puts into our hearts through sonship. We obey and honor His name that He has given us in Christ. The promise there is also for those who have not yet turned to Christ in faith, who are not yet adopted as sons, to turn and believe in Christ, knowing that God will do what He has done for everyone else, what He promises to do from now until the day of His return, to forgive sinners and bring them into His family. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we stand in awe and rejoice the love you have shown us through Christ. For Him not only to die for our sins, but also to be raised back to life as our Lord and for us to be adopted as His brothers, Your sons. Father, we pray, Lord, that You would allow that love that You have showed us to be evident in our minds and in our hearts so that it will be evident in our lives as well. Father, help us to truly embrace your love and live as your children. We ask all this in Jesus' name. Amen.